And so what a lot of people took from this is that poorer people are more likely to vote Republican because they were in these poorer states that tended to vote more Republican. Um, what he showed really clearly is that what, what's actually the case is that it is the rich people in the so-called red states who disproportionately vote Republican. Um, poor people across all states are more likely to vote for Democrats, even poorer white people. If you just look at whites um, and compare them across states, um, what's what's different is that rich people uh, vote differently in red states and blue states. So it's a difference sort of among elites more than it's a difference among poor and working class people broadly broadly defined. That distinction got a little fuzzier in 2016. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Daniel Lorison. He's an assistant professor of sociology at Swarthmore College and associate editor of the British Journal of Sociology. He studies class, politics, and class inequalities in political participation. He is a co-author of the new book, The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged. Daniel, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So classes come up on the show a few times here and there, but we've never actually had an opportunity to properly deep dive class and its impacts. So I think probably the best place to start is to actually unpack the term class. I mean, what do yeah. we mean when we say class? Yeah, that's I mean, that's one of the uh, sort of most complicated parts about it in some ways. Um, when, uh, you know, one definition of class that a lot of people read if they take a sociology class is the sort of Marxist definition of class, uh, which is if you own the means of production, you're a member of the bourgeoisie. And if you don't and you sell your labor po power, you're a member of the proletariat. And it's fairly straightforward and simple. Um, but a lot of people who study class and, uh, you know, think that those, that sort of binary definition doesn't really work well for thinking about, say, doctors who often are paid a salary, but most people would not consider anything like working class. Um, and of course, most people, when they talk about class, don't mean, um, don't mean just who owns the, the means of production and who doesn't. Um, so there's three main ways that uh, academics, at least, uh, sort of operationalize class um, when they're uh, doing doing studies on class reproduction, on class inequality, etc. Uh, one is just the thing that I think most people think of, which is income, right? If you're earning less than a certain amount, then maybe we categorize you as poor, or if we're being a bit more formal, we might talk about income quintiles or income deciles. Um, if you're earning more, you're in the middle. If you're earning the most, you're at the top. Um, but sociologists especially think that uh, income is not a great measure of all of the things that we mean by class. So there are plumbers who earn more than I do, but most of us would argue that that you know would think sort of that a plumber is not in the same class position as a college professor. Um, so a lot of uh, sociologists especially will use uh, some measure of occupation when we're talking about class. Uh, and I could uh, go into even more detail about the various ways folks have used occupation to define classes, if you like. But I'll just mention the third uh, approach that people use, which is just simply education. And this is what you see a lot in the press, especially if uh, in reports about, uh, say, Trump voters or politics, often uh, people in the press and pollsters will just use, do you have a college degree or not? If you have a college degree, you are middle class. And if you don't have a college degree, you are working class. And that 
that is the bifurcation. But again, that misses a lot of what I think are important differences. So the plumber might have a college degree. Um, somebody making $150,000 at, uh, at Google might not have a college degree. Um, so each of these has sort of strengths and weaknesses for picking up some of what we mean by class. This is something that I found uh, particular uh, growing up in Canada and the area that I'm from in Canada. Um, I I didn't really have a good sense of how to articulate class, but it's something you're definitely aware of and can, mm-hmm. if pushed, articulate. But it does have this feel of being a little bit invisible um, mm-hmm. and something that feels a little bit hard to put your thumb on in a way that's different from um, – privilege and uh, disadvantage around gender or race, because those mm-hmm. things are, are somehow much easier to kind of pin and point to. Um, and for me, growing up in an area where the oil rigs were very close, I grew up in Edmonton, and just mm-hmm. north of us is Fort McMurray, where you get the oil rigs, you get a, a really kind of sharp understanding that it's not just about an amount of money, because you have a lot of people earning really solid coin up in the rigs, uh, mm-hmm. compared to people working um, white collar jobs in the city and it doesn't the earnings isn't isn't the differentiator but there is definitely a differentiator there that is difficult to quantify and also quite often difficult to explain exactly how you know it's there Mm-hmm. A lot of, um, you know, for a long time, and still in some measures of class, the way sociologists will talk about it is, is a different binary than the Marx binary, which is the sort of manual, non-manual labor binary, right? If you, if your job is using your body in some way, um, you're, you know, I mean, minds are part of bodies, but generally, you know, if your, if your job is manipulating stuff in the physical world, um, then that's a sort of working class job. So plumbers would go in that category as would oil rig workers, as would people who clean, uh, and so on. Um, And then if your job is sort of manipulating ideas or concepts or computers, you know, software or et cetera, um, non-manual in that sense, um, or people, uh, ideas or people, then you're, you know, then that's sort of a middle class job. And I think that captures, in some sense, a lot of what people mean uh, when they talk about working class or middle class, but we also have the problem or the I don't know. I, I think it's a problem in in the U.S. and I think also Canada, where uh, and actually the U.K. as well, where just to a somewhat lesser extent, where pretty much everybody see is comfortable defining themselves as middle class from somebody who's a uh, you know. Uh, on the lower end of the income spectrum and, uh, maybe working at a car dealership to somebody who's in the top 20% of the income distribution and working at a college. Um, so, you know, we have some sense that these, these distinctions and the kind of work that you do, uh, shape your class position. Uh, but we don't have a great, I think, always a great mapping between what we think matters for class and the words that people use to talk about themselves or to understand each other. It's interesting how we have a tendency to talk around class, but often mm-hmm. not about it specifically. So we use terms like white collar and blue collar, though that's a mm-hmm. really good kind of overall distinction of how we tend to talk about class more colloquially without mm-hmm. actually talking specifically about it. Also, what you said about education, whether someone has a college degree or doesn't have a college degree. But again, that's difficult 
And it doesn't always realistically map well, because if I think of myself, I don't have a college degree, um, but I do work very white collar work. And mm-hmm. so it, it starts to create these fuzzy boundaries. Um, and we, we tend to focus, I think, I think a lot of people tend to think when they do think about class as it's one thing, it's either, you know, whether you're poor or wealthy or have a middle income or whether you're educated or not. Um, but it does seem to be more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, my preferred approach when I when I think about what I mean by class and how I'm defining class for a project I'm working on or defining it in a book um, is to think about all the resources people have at their d- disposal that are going to shape sort of their their life chances, their career prospects, their financial stability, um, broadly how nice their life is, right? Um, and so, you know. Income is absolutely one of those resources, and for lots of things you want to know about, it might be the most important one, right? Um, but for lots of other things, uh, education is going to be the determinative determinative factor. Um, and so, and and for lots of things, all of those things are going to matter all together, right? Um, the chance that your kids are going to uh, be able to get into a good college and find a you know find a stable life for themselves and so on, um, assuming that that's what's important to them. Like your money can help make that happen. Your own education can help make that happen. How stable your job is can help make that happen. Uh, who's around you and what kinds of conversations you have at the dinner table. Uh, you know the sort of cultural capital that you imbue that you uh give to your kids um all of that is going to shape their sort of life chances as they grow up and as they you know go off into the world and so it doesn't it doesn't make sense to only measure one of those things often you know on average these things tend to go together right people with a college degree tend to earn more than people without a college degree but lot there's lots of exceptions in both directions um people who um work in white collar jobs tend to have college degrees and earn more than people who work in blue collar jobs but there are lots of dis- lots of exceptions so i think the thing that makes the most sense is wherever possible to sort of bring into your discussion into your analysis into your thinking all the kinds of resources that people have I know one of the primary proxies that we used uh, when we talk about class or try and get a sense of what class someone's uh, from in studies, uh, one of those pieces of shorthand, um, tends to be the actual job you have. So can you talk a little bit more about why that's uh, such a strong correlative indicator um, in this area of study and why we tend to lean on that specifically? Sure. I think it's, you know, it's a couple things. One is that incomes come from jobs, uh, unless you're, uh, living off investments or, uh, you know, unable to work and, uh, being supported by state benefits of some sort. For everybody, you know, for, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but for most of us in the middle, in the very big middle, uh, our incomes come from our jobs. So our jobs predict this other resource that's important. Um, I think that's part of it. I think part of it comes from, you know, a tradition in sociology uh, that goes back to to Marx in some ways of thinking that your your sort of your role in society in some sense is at least in large part your job what you contribute to the overall uh, you know to GDP if you want to think about it like an economist or to the collective good if you want to think about it more like a socialist um, but whatever it is you know your job is is a big part of how you contribute not all of it but a big part um, so it makes sense to think about that in terms of sort of the stratification structure of society. Um, and I think, I think the other thing is, is that 
occupations, not entirely, but occupations often have, you know, a fair degree of similarity in um, what kinds of uh, preparation they require, what kinds of skills they require. So the sort of the resources that a person has to have to get an occupation are in some sense measured by the occupation that they have, if that makes sense. Um, but I think there's still, you know, I don't think occupation by itself is is all of class, but there are good reasons why it's a big part of it. I know another big signifier, what can be a big signifier is this kind of loose, sometimes fuzzy idea of taste. We like mm -hmm. to think of taste as being aligned with individual personality. But if you look on the whole, um, and you actually start to look at trends of taste and also look at at information about uh, other indicators around class, you start to get the feel that taste is wrapped up in this whole thing. And one of these, one of the components that helps us parse apart and interact with people in this kind of invisible classist way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Pierre Bourdieu is the theorist who uh, sort of made this argument the most strongly, although it's also in um, a book that I, I recently actually read for the first time and really enjoyed, which is uh, Veblen's The Leisure Class, uh, which also sort of is the sort of early version of this argument. Um, but, you know, a lot of – backing up a bit, a lot of studies about – or a lot of how we think about class, um, especially in the U.S. and Canada, is sort of in opposition to the sort of hierarchies of a feudal society where you had, you know, kings and queens at the top and all sort all the orders of the nobility um, and the various other orders and then the sort of the peasants and the and folks at the bottom. And in that case, you know, the 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 stratification was explicit and designated at birth and um, really hard to move move out of or move around in. Um, and so a lot of uh, work on class is sort of trying to figure out, well, we don't have a, a, a feudal sort of status hierarchy the way we did um, in many places uh, in the past um, and, you know, in the UK officially still um, and a couple other places. But, um, uh, you know, in the absence of that or with that being much less powerful than it was, how do we make sense of who fits where? Um, and so, um, you know, but so that's sort of the broader context and not directly an answer to the question about taste but in terms of taste then so in a in a world where you know formally there's no status hierarchy between a, I'll just keep using the plumber and the college professor right mm -hmm. um, there's no formal status hierarchy that says one is supposed to be better than the other and yet there's sort of this overall uh, sense that many people have that one is a more prestigious occupation or a more important occupation or etc I'm not sure if I buy that a college professor should be more important than a plumber but you know there is this sort of hierarchy how do we how does that hierarchy get reproduced and recognized and how does it get um, how do people sort of benefit from it and one way they benefit from it is by um, a belief that is supposed to be separate from that, that is, you know, you're, if you have, quote, good taste, you are a cultivated, you know, you know well-heeled, you know, high-status person just because of your good taste. And then you sort of mask the way that taste uh, comes from class and instead, uh, you know, sort of put all the, the status hierarchy on taste instead of on 
you know, formal, what do you do for work or what do you, you know, how much money do you earn or that sort of thing. I remember I was having a, a conversation with someone about um, class as a topic when I was just sort of starting to grapple with it. And uh, they talked about hipsterism as an example of kind of modern class performance. And that really helped me understand a little bit of some of the stuff we're talking about here, because I had never really thought about that before. But um, it, it's a it's a really good example, because if you talk about what is a hipster um, and the kind of colloquial understanding of that, everybody has an understanding of kind of that subculture and some stereotypes about it and an understanding of kind of what that person looks like, what they're likely to say, what they're interested in, that kind of thing. And whether you approve or disapprove, um, it, it, that's something that kind of fits into an unspoken hierarchy of kind of those subtypes and subcultures that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, the, you know, Bridges big book that talks about this, that, uh, sort of gave us the terms cultural capital and a bunch of these other terms. And this, this sort of mapping of class to taste is called distinction. And in his whole argument is that, you know, the ways that people express their tastes, even if it's not a sort of conscious, overt, aha, this is what I'm doing kind of thing, our strategies of distinction, our ways we distinguish ourselves from others, um, and also distinguish ourselves as belonging to certain groups. And one of the key sort of kinds of distinction that works as advantageous for groups who also have other advantages is having a relation to cultural objects of a sort of distance and a, a not necessity, right? So if you can sort of ironically consume poor beer just because, you know, you have decided to be ironic in your personal habits, um, not because it's all you can afford, then that's sort of the classic strategy of distinction in some sense, right? To sort of show I, I, I could choose to do any of this wide range of cultural practices um, based on criteria that only make sense in my little group or that are removed from criteria like what's the cheapest or what's the most filling or um, what will last the longest or what or whatever it is. So I want to talk a little bit more about why class produces privilege and disadvantage, because mm-hmm. I think this is something that often we struggle with, whether we're talking about class or something else. Um, mm-hmm. But in particular with class, I think it's complicated once you start to get into the details, because it's clear to see how something like making more money can put mm-hmm. you at an advantage or disadvantage. But there's also an understanding of, well, you can fix that by getting a different job or by getting education or a variety of other, but if only you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps kinds of conversations. So I want to dig into a little bit about how class perpetuates privilege and disadvantage, because I think that's something that is um, often elusive when we talk about class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so, I mean, on, on some, in some sense, it's also complicated because it's a little bit of a, uh, a, a, a truism, right? That you, if, you know, by definition, if you are poor, you are disadvantaged because you are poor, which is not true of other things that we look at as sort of predictors of advantage and disadvantage, right? It's not the case that by definition, um, people who are women 
are disadvantaged, right? Um, there's nothing intrinsic in womanhood that makes you less advantaged. That's a, clearly about sexism. Um, whereas there is something intrinsic by definition in being poor that makes you less advantaged. You have less money. Um, that's one of the kinds of advantage that there is. So it's a, it's a little bit tricky because class in some sense can be both an independent and a dependent variable in a way that gender and race much less so, at least when you're talking about sort of inequality of various sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, there are small exceptions to that, to that, but broadly speaking, you know, class can really be both an independent and a dependent variable. Um, gender is rarely the outcome of processes. It's, you know, I'm trans myself. It's, you know, there's lots of places where it is an outcome of a series of things, but usually not inequality processes. Right. Um, so, um, so anyway, so that makes it a little bit hard. And to sort of separate what's just a tautology, that's the word I was thinking, trying to think of earlier, uh, what's just a tautology from what's a true sort of causal process of some sort. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that gets lost when we talk about um, how class origin shapes class destination or not lost, but I think is important to keep in mind is just the overall structure of the labor of the economy, of what jobs are available, of what you know, what the distribution of income is, right? Um, so one of the problems with sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps arguments is, you know, if there's more people who want to be, oh, say college professors, because that's really true. Um, you know, if there's more people who want to be college professors than there are jobs as college professors. Um, and in fact, my friends in academia and I talk about this all the time because, you know, I, we got 250 applications for one job at Swarthmore last year. Um, and most of the people who applied did not get jobs elsewhere either. Um, there's just an oversupply of PhDs. Then there's no amount of bootstrap pulling um, that's going to get somebody into a, a position they consider desirable, right? Um, so that's one thing that's important is just, you know, what jobs are available. Um, and then the next question is, especially when there are fewer desirable jobs than there are people who want those jobs, then selection tends to happen based on things that aren't only about criteria for that position, right? Um, almost all of the 250 people who applied for the job that we had last year were entirely qualified, seemed, you know, did interesting work, wrote perfectly clearly, you know, did all the things that are the sort of basic, had PhDs, right? Did all the things that were required for the job. Then you, then you end up by necessity, sort of using your taste to decide among people, ooh, this research looks more interesting than that research. Or in the case of jobs outside of academia, you know, they just seem to fit in here, or they just seem like a good guy I want to hang out with, or that sort of thing. And what we know, um, you know, and I try to avoid this as much as, as possible when I'm involved in hiring, but what we know is that often who people like is people like them. Um, that's called homophily in uh, social sciences and actually in other sciences as well. Um, the the feature of people liking people who are similar to themselves, um, and that given who's already in uh, you know elite jobs, especially tends to reproduce class advantage for who gets into those jobs, even among people who have all the qualifications, who have all the um, sort of requisite skills, etc. 
I also want to talk a little bit about differences in how class is perceived and sometimes discussed or oftentimes maybe not discussed as much as it should be in different parts of the world. And I'm mostly going to focus on North America and the UK in part because in the last few years, I've recently moved from Canada to the UK. Um, and so experience some of the different ways that not just classism, um, some other things too, but in this one in particular, um, I, I found a very different experience here than uh, in Canada. And I think part of it is culturally, they've um, gone in different ways, and it sort of exposes itself in different ways. And they have different kind of more immediate histories surrounding the topic, uh, or other topics kind of getting in the way of it a little bit. But also, I think because I've been pulled out of a familiar class structure that was invisible to me, and been put in one that is made more, more visible by me being effectively foreign to it. Um, that has made me, I think, more aware of it in a weird way. So the thing that I think is really important to think about when we think about class, especially in the U.S., is the ways that it um, – overlaps with and intersects with race, right? We're a country that's founded on, uh, you know, settler colonialism, on genocide of Native people. Um, you know, much of the wealth of the country was built using um, the labor of enslaved people. And so, you know, our entire economic structure is deeply entwined with uh, a racial status system. So we weren't founded, you know, the U.S. is, you know, people in the U.S. are very proud of this. You know, we never had, uh, you know, nobility. We never, you know, we were founded as everybody is equal, except we were founded on this sort of racial caste system, right? Um, and that shapes every aspect of U.S. society. And I think it's part of why we're dumb about class in some ways, um, because we, we race is so much in everything that people think about and and treat race as in some sense a proxy for class. Mm -hmm. And that's not entirely wrong, right? People of color in the US, black and brown people especially, are disproportionately poor. They're disproportionately um, in, uh, you know, in uh, very poor areas. They're disproportionately disadvantaged in all sorts of ways, not all of them only economic. Um, and, you know, if you think about it the other way, um, on the one hand, a majority of people in the U.S. who are poor or working class, however you want to define that, are white, but white people are disproportionately um, better off than um, especially black and brown people in the U.S. Um, so if we think about those, um, you know, so part of why I think class is misread or um, sort of under the table a little bit is because the history of racial inequality is so powerful in shaping our institutions and shaping our interactions um, that that um, sort of swamps understandings of class for a lot of people um, in in lots of ways. Um, and so, whereas in the UK, you know, they also got a lot of their wealth from um, being a imperial power or being a colonial power, but that, um, but in the actual country itself, that was much less of an important dynamic. And there are people in the UK who can trace their roots to being, you know, in a particular place, um, to being, you know, generations and generations and generations back of being poor working class, of being um, minors or et cetera. And that sort of the um, overt 
kinds of discrimination and so on are mostly around class within a racial group as opposed to around class and race across racial groups. That was a very long explanation, but that's, I think, a big part of why it's so different in the two places. Yeah, it's, um, it's almost like there's so much correlation and mashup in North America around race and class that it's really difficult to tease the two apart. And the racism side is so much easier to see, but also so much easier to point to kind of causal effect in the mm-hmm. recent past. Whereas in the UK, it's, because the UK was so white for so long, um, and that sort of recent racial dynamic isn't doesn't live here in the same way, those yeah. distinctions had to be made on other factors. It's not as closely entwined. And that isn't to say there aren't intersections here. There definitely are. Um, yeah. But they're different and they're less uh, – classes is more kind of widely discussed and widely acknowledged here, even in the way people talk about – um, you hear a lot of blue collar, white collar in North America, but here you get this idea of working class, lower middle, 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 upper middle, that kind of stuff. There's, there's more definition and stratification here, I find. Yeah. And I think people, I mean, there's also, you know, it actually is the case in the U.S. We don't think of it this way, but there are sort of classed accents, right? The regional accents that we think about as regional accents are often only the accents of sort of the working class people in those areas, um, or primarily the accents of the working class people in those areas. Um, but in the UK, everyone explicitly knows that a South London working class accent sounds like so, and it's different from a North London working class accent, and it's different from a London posh person accent. Um, and not to mention the sort of, and I, I, we were talking about this a bit, but I, you know, I learned to distinguish some of these, but people can distinguish the like Oxbridge accent from the, or the public school in the UK sense of an incredibly exclusive private high school. Um, the public school accent uh, from the sort of regular upper middle class accent. So there's, um, it's more in some ways. I think class in the UK is a bit, a bit like ethnicity in the US, right? That it's it sticks to people more explicitly, and people embrace it more explicitly uh, than they do here. There's definitely different dynamics, and I've found living in one place uh, in a different place now has allowed me to see the North American mix and to start to parse out some of that baggage in North America that I was very blind to just from being here in a different dynamic. Um, in the same way that I find sometimes living here, having grown up in North America with a lot more kind of daily understanding of um, race issues, uh, just from being steeped in it, I find sometimes here there's a lot of naivete about those mm-hmm. issues in particular, how, um, why, why they are the way they are in the US and why it's talked about so much and why it's such an issue. And it, it's just come mm-hmm. from from what you've grown up with and what's kind of been your milieu. Yeah. And that, um, I mean, that's true sort of cross-nationally and that sort of what you've grown up with and what's been your milieu is also one way to define sort of how class taste, classed tastes and classed differences and approaches to the world get formed, right? You get your sort of specific local, parental, familial, school, etc. milieu, and that shapes how you learn to see the world. I mean, there's evidence, this is, you know, slightly to the side of what you were just saying, but it just, you know, just reminds me of this, you know, we, you know, 
of this issue that um, you know everything from how people think about what is government or what is politics to how people um, think about whether an art museum is ed- ever a place they would like to set foot in um, to you know whether they might ever want to go to in Philadelphia it's an Eagles game um, you know that is shaped by your um, your class position the milieu you grow up in. I do want to talk about some of your work and research into specifically how class and politics intersect. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that particular area and what drew you to start focusing in on uh, the way class backgrounds or your social class uh, affects your own politics or the way you interact with the political world? Sure. So this is, I mean, I started with Marx and part of that is because a lot of sociologists start with Marx and um, part of it is because I was raised by a Marxist. Um, and so, you know, when I was growing up, I, you know, she thought and I therefore thought that uh, at some point the workers would join together and make the revolution and we'd have a society where everybody was, um, you know, uh, to each according to their ability and from each according to their need and no inequality and everyone would have enough to eat and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, so, you know, sort of growing up through the 90s and seeing that possibility, I mean, partly because I just got older and was paying attention to the world on my own and partly because of the sort of world political events that happened in terms of uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and so on, um, it became more and more clear to me that that, you know, workers will just realize their collective interest and band together and somehow make a revolution and transform society um, seemed less and less likely to, uh, likely to me. Um, but I still have this question of like, it is clear that much of the way society is organized is bad for poor and working class people. It's also bad for black and brown people, no matter what their class position. Um, but, you know, we don't take care of people in the U.S. who aren't, for whatever reason, able to find a job that is going to get them health insurance and a reliable living wage. Um, and so, you know, it seems clear if you take a step back and you think about the things, at least the way I do, that uh, it would be in the interests of poor and working class people broadly defined to work for some sort of political transformation that would mean that they all got health care or they all got, you know, reliably enough to eat every week and a reasonable roof over their heads, etc. Um, so that question, you know, is sort of transformed from why doesn't the revolution happen to why don't people engage the democratic process that's available to them um, to make some substantial transformations. So that's sort of what brought me to this question is is how given that there's clear economic interests that a majority of people in the US have in having a different uh system of social security in the in the broad sense not just the SSI program uh why isn't there more work on that why aren't people voting um in bigger and higher numbers about only about 60% of people uh who are eligible in the US vote in each uh, presidential election and lower percentages uh, than that vote in every, um, you know, in the uh, midterm elections and even lower percentages. It's about 40% usually in the midterms, though it was closer to 50 in 2018, which was great, um, and even less in local elections and primaries and so on. Um, and there's huge class disparity in political participation. So um, it's a little hard to measure perfectly because we, um, you know, we don't ask people their class when they go to vote, so we can't like check it based on voter rolls, but based on surveys. Um, 
privileged people, people earning in the top of the income distribution, are about twice as likely to say they voted than people at the bottom of the income distribution. Um, so there's a huge gap in political participation by class. Um, so I really got into this trying to figure out how that could be less or why it is so big in the first place. I know as well, um, uh, in particular with the events of the last presidential election and the election of Trump, uh, there was a lot that, that ignited a lot of discussion around class and voting trends and different voting trends for different classes of people. In addition to the kind of known, uh, known bifurcations of where people vote anyway along racial lines and gender lines and that kind of thing. So do we have any good studies about how, how class um, might impact your inclinations when you do vote? Is there some understanding of how that actually exposes itself? Or is that still something we're trying to figure out? Yes. Uh, so there, um, generally speaking, um, there's a, a great book that I really like but uh, by Andrew Gelman called Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State, um, which I partly like because of the Dr. Seuss title, but also it's a very good book. It's a great title. Um, it is a really good title. Um, and there's a at least in the hardback, there were little Dr. Seuss fish on the front, I think. Um, <laughs> or I just imagined that they were there because they should be. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, he, you know, when we talk about politics in the U.S., we often talk about red states and blue states. And um, liberals especially love to point out um, that the red states tend to vote Republican, but they are the poorer states, right? Um, and so what a lot of people took from this is that poorer people are more likely to vote Republican because they were in these poorer states that tended to vote more Republican. Um, what he showed really clearly is that what, what's actually the case is that it is the rich people in the so-called red states who disproportionately vote Republican. Um, poor people across all states are more likely to vote for Democrats, even poorer white people. If you just look at whites um, and compare them across states, um, what's, what's different is that rich people uh, vote differently in red states and blue states. So it's a difference sort of among elites more than it's a difference among poor and working class people broadly broadly defined. That distinction got a little fuzzier in 2016, um, or that sort of counter to the common narrative got a little fuzzier in 2016. Um, so Republicans, people who voted Republican in 2016, people who voted for Trump are still um, disproportionately uh, or sort of on average better off than people who vote for vote for Democrats, the people who voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, it is true that working class white people, if you define working class as people who don't have a college degree, um, were more likely to vote for Trump than uh, people with white people with college degrees. So if you look at it by college degree, um, uh, there was sort of a class uh, difference where the working class favored Trump. Um, but if you define class in other ways that are more about income, uh, the the distinction still uh, hold up. So there's a blog post by uh, Kevin, I think his last name is pronounced Reuning, um, that looks at um, sort of how precarious people's economic situation is, because there's this whole narrative around the election that what was really driving support for Trump was um, economic precarity, right? White people were uh, in economic distress, and so they were they found Trump appealing, and they were maybe more susceptible to his sort of racist, nationalist, populist uh, approach to the world, 
and so they were um, uh, very likely to support him based on that. Um, so he looked at uh, – he developed a measure of economic precarity um, – and looked at Trump approval across the most precarious to the least precarious. Um, and what he found is that there's huge portions of the, um, what he found is the most precarious groups who strongly disapprove of Trump. Um, e again, even if you just look among white people. Um, so the idea that, um, precarity was driving Trump support really, um, doesn't make sense. I think, um, so, so again, you know, we have this sense that poor and working class people, uh, poor and working class white people are especially racist, especially Republican. Not that those things are always the same, although more and more under Trump, I think they are. Um, and especially, um, you know, sort of especially susceptible to sort of populist appeals and his analysis. And I think this is right shows that that's not really how it works. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. I think this, um, rolls into the idea that class is one of those things, like a lot of other areas of privilege and disadvantage that is very, very difficult to study because it, it's so intersectional. It has so many facets and so many particulars that are hard to parse apart. Um, but also it's, it's talking about populations and trends. And in order to do science on that, you don't have the same things at your disposal as you would if you were trying to run a double blind trial on uh, whether or right. not a new medical substance works. Um, right. So how do you actually try and study class and those kinds of questions in a, in a rigorous, more scientific way, given the complexity around um, even trying to answer these questions? Yeah. Um, whew, that's a big question. I mean, I think, you know, one answer to that question, and there is actually just a, a sort of, at least on Twitter, a fight among sociologists about how we think about this. You know, one answer to that question is science always has values always has politics always has some amount of power in it isn't ever sort of purely removed and rational and objective and the things that we'd like to imagine that it is um usually the people sort of claiming that level of pure remove and and so on are privileged folks and they're missing something um especially i think when we talk about the social sciences although there's evidence of it in the um, natural sciences as well um especially when we talk about things like um you know who's advantaged and disadvantaged and how social processes work to reproduce inequality and so on. So one answer is, you know, maybe scientificness isn't the only thing we should be thinking about. Um, but I also think, you know, or at least scientificness gets used sometimes to um, disparage people who are doing work on their own communities or doing work that is connected directly to politics or et cetera. Um, but I also think, you know, we do want to have, I don't, and I don't think anybody disagrees with this. We do want to have as accurate a picture of the social world as we possibly can. We want to get at something that's approaching a true story about how the world works and how, in, you know, in the case of my work and um, my work with uh, my co-author Sam, on the class ceiling book about you know how class produces advantages or disadvantages or how it gets reproduced um so you know if we want to have that accurate picture of the social world um we have to think about um you know we have to use the tools that are available to us um a lot of folks think that survey research uh because of its sort of 
big N, so to speak, it's large numbers of respondents and it's math and so on is more objective or more scientific than other kinds of work. I'm not sure that that's true, uh, but it is a tool for getting a broad picture of what sort of the social world looks like. Um, so a lot of my work is based on surveys, not all of it. Um, but those surveys, you know, the best ones have multiple measures of class position. And one of the things I think is the most important is to sort of, you know, when you're doing these analyses, whether they're of survey data or of anything else, to make sure that you're not only looking at things in thing only looking at things in a way that will find you the answers you already expect. Um, and so, you know, looking at things in a, in a, a bunch of different ways, using different measures, different models, um, and seeing if you get roughly the same picture, no matter how you look at it, is one of the things that I think is really important uh, for social science research. I really liked in the class ceiling when I was reading it. Um, and I think this is a, a book that I've read certainly in the last few years that has done this really well in combining both the kind of quantitative in sociology as well as the qualitative. Um, there's a lot of time spent both on the surveys and the trends and the looking at the large amounts of data and, and sort of trying to parse some of that information out uh, more broadly, but also um, to create and do that research, um, you and your co-author also did a lot of in-depth interviews with specific people um, that were clearly in-depth and at length to start mm -hmm. to tease out some of the specifics, because some things cannot be answered by looking at numbers in order to understand uh, someone's lived experience of a thing, there really is no better way than to talk to them about their lived experience. And I think oftentimes in science, the long form interview can seem to many people as non-valuable or less valuable than a survey that has 100,000 respondents. Mm -hmm. But there are things that you can get from that interview, in particular, if you are able to do 50 of them or 60 or 100 of them, you can start to tease out some specifics that you will never get from a survey. Right. I mean, I think one what I would tell my, what I tell my students is, you know, all of these ways that we try to collect information about the social world, they're all social encounters of some sort, right? If you're getting somebody to do a survey, you have to find the person, you have to, you know, you have to design the questions in advance. They are ticking boxes. What one person means when they tick a box is not necessarily the same thing as what another person means um, when they tick a box. There was just this, I thought, very poor, um, not in the economic sense, but in the not very good sense. Uh, analysis about the the three parts of the Democratic Party, and it was based entirely on um, what people answered to the question of where they would place themselves on an ideological spectrum, um, from very liberal to very conservative. Um, and the argument was that uh, people of color in the U.S. are who say they're Democrats are were taking the moderate box uh, more, or more of the people who ticked the moderate box were people of color than the people who ticked the very liberal box. But like what people mean when they tick those boxes of very liberal, liberal, etc., is really different across place, across community, across individuals. And so to say those are sort of coherent groups because everybody, you know, everybody who checked moderate is a coherent group of, you know, a constituency within the Democratic Party, I think is fairly silly. Um, the analysis was a bit more sophisticated than that, but that was sort of the... Um, the headline finding that people were discussing. Um, but if you actually talk to people and, you know, what, 
got a sense of, you know, what does it mean to you to place yourself on an ideological spectrum, or have you even ever thought of yourself as on an ideological spectrum from left to right before? Um, and what, if so, what, how would you define the wings of that, the, you know, the poles of that spectrum? You'd get a really different sense of what people's politics are and who's in groups with whom than if, than just looking at these boxes ticked on a survey. Now, I love survey research and I really like it when people take boxes because it means I could do all kinds of stuff with those, you know, those survey answers. But it, you know, you, you never know what somebody means in a, in a given answer to a survey question. It's definitely a tricky thing to try and study lived, experienced culture and society because you, as soon as you touch it, you influence it. And mm -hmm. so I would imagine if you are writing surveys or conducting these kinds of interviews, it must be so difficult to try and make them as objective as possible and make sure you're not leading someone down a path or interpreting things in a way that perhaps they don't mean, because that's something we know is quite easy to do and people do every day. It's very natural for us to try and, and do those things. So I can only imagine that that is both science and art in trying to figure out how to conduct that research in a way that is effectively kind of impossible, but you want to get as close to that as impossible as you can. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way to think about it. And it's definitely part of what I think about you absolutely don't want to conduct interviews where you say, so I think, uh, you know, working class people have a hard time getting into privileged jobs. Don't you agree, right? That wouldn't tell you anything about <laughs> pretty much anything. I'll, I mean, it could be an interesting sort of social experiment in some ways, but um, wouldn't be a good basis on which to conclude that working class people have a hard time getting into privileged jobs, right? Um, but I think there's also, um, you know, on the one hand, people want to be helpful and they want to, um, you know, sort of give you what they think that you want in interviews. On the other hand, um, people also want to be um, true to the image of themselves that they want to have or their, um, or just sort of tell you stories they believe to be true about themselves. And while, you know, people are not perfect uh memory storers and are not perfect at, at all at sort of giving accounts that explain why things happen, you get, a, you know, over the course of talking to somebody for 45 minutes or an hour, you get a lot of a sense of sort of how they understand whatever it is you're talking about. Um, and, you know, I think you usually can get more from that than people worry that you can, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's, it's, it's something that you wouldn't want to use in isolation, just in the same way that you wouldn't want to rely on survey results in isolation. They complement each other and allow a different level of of zoom that complements each other, I think. I think that's exactly right. And there's you know, there's other methods in the social sciences, there's ethnography, there's focus groups, there's experiments, and all of those together allow us to get a pretty good view of a lot of the dynamics in the social world, um, not to mention the sort of, you know, economic data and, and archives and all of that, um, you know, taken together, uh, we can get a pretty good view of a lot of the issues we want to understand. Um, but any one study, any one method doesn't always get you this that far. 
So if you were to uh, recommend maybe a place for people to start who are interested to start looking more into a class in a more kind of rigorous academic way, um, either books or maybe online resources, do you have some some potential um, good first places to start for people who are interested in, in better wrapping their head around some of these concepts and understanding them better? Well, I do think people should read our book, um, partly, you know, because I wrote it and I like it, but I, I, we made the first two chapters sort of the first chapter or two really deliberately to be sort of an introduction to class mobility overall so that you could get a sense of what the patterns are and what the terminology is. So I'll just shamelessly plug my own thing for a moment there. Absolutely. Um, And then, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of recent books that I don't know if I, I don't know if I have a, I'll probably think of it after we're done, but I don't know if I have a sort of a single book on class, um, that I would say is the resource that people should go to. Um, I think if you're, you know, if you're in North America, um, but really, even if you're in the UK as well, you need to be thinking about class and race together, ideally. And there's a couple of uh, books that I think are, are very good on that. Um, one is actually is Lower Ed by Tressie McMillan Cottom, which is about um, the ways that the for-profit uh, tertiary education, for-profit colleges and universities um, work to exploit uh poor people and especially women of color um, and it gets at sort of the overall issue of how the economy is structured and what jobs people are trying to get into as well as uh, what she calls, I think she calls it the education gospel. So the idea that sort of education is the thing that everyone needs and if you get it you will get a good job and you will also sort of have proved you're a meritorious worthwhile person. Um, so it gets at sort of the what we call and lots of people call the, the myth of meritocracy, right? The myth that just sort of working hard enough and proving yourself with credentials or whatever else it is is the thing that you need to um to do well um so that's a really good book another good book that's sort of on a topic quite related to ours but is about the u.s and um it's about getting into jobs is lauren rivera's pedigree um and that's about the ways that um elite professional services firms uh like she doesn't name the ones she studied but like mckinsey for consulting uh, top law firms, etc., um, recruit specifically from um, Ivy League universities and exclude people based on especially class cultural signals, also race and gender bias. Um, so that's another sort of good overview of how all of these things work together to uh, shape economic outcomes for folks. E- I, I definitely am interested and in both of those books. Thank you for the recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. And for the listeners, we will make sure that we link to those and uh, as well, the class ceiling, why it pays to be privileged on our website. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. It's a really important topic and I'm so glad that I could have you on to talk about it with us. Thank you so much. I was really glad to be on and I enjoyed our conversation. It was fun. If you'd like to learn more about Daniel Lorison, uh, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode. You can see them and find them as per usual on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Just look for this episode show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. 
The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.